Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast titled C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week, like this podcast, we talk with different insightful people, thought leaders, CEOs, best-selling authors, celebrities that have a particular point of view expertise on a topic. And about six months ago, we found that the most listened to episodes weren't always the biggest celebrity or movie star. They were often people just like you and I, entrepreneurs, people that had founded businesses, people who were in the C-suite. And we all wanted to model some of our own leadership skills and our professional development after them. And so this podcast is dedicated to people who are, in fact, in the C-suite. Today, our guest is Ben Lamb. He is the CEO and founder of Colossal Bioscience, which is a fascinating organization focused on this idea of de-extinction, a term that I'm not that familiar with, but we're going to talk today about what that means, why that's important, why we perhaps all should have some interest in the idea of de-extinction, and also spend a lot of our time drawing upon Ben's expertise as a very successful kind of um, intrepid serial entrepreneur who has um, sold many of the companies he's founded and learn some of the lessons from him on what are some of the nuances, the cultural and business insights on those of us who are interested in growing a business. How do you evaluate it? How do you know what the telltale signs are of when you found a good buyer? How do you know the transition will be in good hands and actually close the deal? So Ben, welcome to today's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Hey, my honor, man. So Ben, before we get into uh, the, the mission and the work that Colossal Bioscience does, and this concept of de-extinction, would you maybe do a quick minute overview of what your own professional journey has been, your education, some of the businesses you owned? Give us a few minutes on that for context, and then we'll uh, move over to um, Colossal Bioscience. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, so my journey has been, uh, I would say, a typical entrepreneur journey where you go start working places, you find out that maybe you're not the most employable. I actually found that out at a pretty early age. So I, I worked at a lot of different jobs in high school. I got fired from all of them. So I realized that once I went to college that I, I didn't know if I would have to start a company or essentially be homeless. And that was kind of what I felt like the two binary choices of my life were. But I went to uh, school for finance and accounting, decided that I didn't want to go into the, like big consulting or financial accounting uh, 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 and doing audits and all that stuff. And so I started my first company in college that was focused on e-learning, uh, grew it to um, a decent size, uh, went through the sale process, actually went through two sale processes where I brought on private equity group to, to be involved with the company. And so it sold part of it. And we had a, a long-term buyer and then left and started another company uh, that, that we grew that ended up getting acquired by Accenture that was called Chaotic Moon. Uh, it was a mobile application development company, actually one of the largest in the US. And along that journey, we actually found some really interesting market opportunities. So we spun out a couple companies, one being a gaming company called Team Chaos that I started with uh, one of my partners, Andrew, uh, and that we ended up you know, growing Team Chaos and ended up uh, being fortunately acquired by, by Zynga. We started a conversational intelligence platform together uh, that we grew that got acquired by Live Person. And then we started a uh, AI defense company called Hypergiant uh, that's still running. We actually brought in the new CEO to run uh, the company uh, so that I could leave and go work on uh, Colossal um, uh, and, and build the de-extinction company. Uh, thanks for the recap. Let's pivot and talk about this concept of bringing back the woolly mammoth. And to the extent that's either a metaphor or literally the mission of Colossal Bioscience, I think maybe you've even coined this term or perhaps someone else did around de-extinction. Talk about the mission 
of what you are now the CEO and founder of Colossal Bioscience. What does de-extinction mean and why should anyone care? Well, I think everyone should care because uh, between now and 2050, we're going to lose 50% of uh, all biodiversity on planet Earth. And so when that happens, uh, different ecosystems start to degrade and fall apart as massive applications to you know climate change and, and how we live our lives. And so um, how did we, we were trying to figure out different ways to tackle this. And we found that if we started a company that was focused on bringing back extinct species, that we could then rewild back into their locations to help preserve de degraded ecosystems and hopefully revitalize them. In this case, with the woolly mammoth in the Arctic, we thought that we could bring in the right level of investors so that we could over time build what we're calling a de-extinction toolkit. So genetic tools for uh, you know, modifying and, and creating organisms and then uh, uh, robotics and automation in laboratories to make them more efficient, as well as uh, long-term artificial wombs or ex vivo work uh, so that we can grow animals um, ex utero. And so that kind of de-extinction stack is not only allowed, allows us to bring you know, species back like the woolly mammoth, it's also really helpful with small population animals like the northern white rhino where only two females still exist uh, on the planet. So it's, it's about building incredible technologies for both uh, conservation, de-extinction, and then long-term uh, human healthcare. And just practically tell us, you know, like, how's that going? I know you've not yet brought back the woolly mammoth, but yeah, how is it? You can't start there, perhaps, but uh, are there successes, some successes to report in already? Yeah, we've, we've, we've been very, very fortunate. Uh, you know, we've, we've only been around for about seven months. We've raised $75 million. We have four labs and 70 people uh, working on the project, including not just the de-extinction part of the mammoth, but also the underlying technology stack. It's pretty important to, to, to our mission. And yeah, we're already in the editing process. So a lot of this was built on the incredible work that George Church, my co-founder uh, from Harvard University had been working on for uh, six plus years. And so we're now in the process of actually making edits. And we actually showed at South by, uh, at South by Southwest earlier this year in March, uh, some of the first edited cells. So um, we're making tremendous tremendous pro uh, progress, but it is a four to five year journey. So it's not something that necessarily happens overnight, but um, so far we're on track, which is great. So, but I'm sure some people right now are thinking about Jurassic Park as a corollary, fictional corollary, for the skeptic or the person who's hearing this concept like legitimately on a legitimate nonfiction podcast, what's the downside to this? What, 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 do, what do the skeptics say, assuming the technology and the science works, what's the downside to your pursuit of de-extinction? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and we've been very, very fortunate since launch. We've you know garnered over 20 billion media impressions, and we're we have a 96% positive sentiment analysis. But you know, we're actually very excited about the skeptics and 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 the naysayers and whatnot because that four percent, even though it's small, is really, really important to us because you learn so much more from people that tell you why you shouldn't do something than people that say, oh yeah, this is a great idea, you should just go do it, right? Like those people are great and we're very grateful for supporters, but it's actually really helpful for us to get uh, also negative uh, feedback or just you know different feedback. And so I think we've done a really good job of bringing together not just the science team, but also the conservation community, uh, as well as top bioethicists. 
to, to the table to kind of help us frame this. And, you know, I think we're trying to be as transparent and thoughtful as possible. And, and that was one of the things that, that uh, when we launched, people were, some of the naysayers were concerned about was, will you actually, uh, you know, be transparent about the process? And this isn't something that we secretly raise money for. We're doing in a lab. And then there was like a massive unveiling, right? We've been very transparent from day one, and we actually uh, are going to continue to. We're actually working with a very large media company uh, around uh, putting uh, cameras and filming the journey. So we're going to be sharing that with the world. We really think this is not a colossal or an American initiative. It's really a worldwide initiative. Um, and so we're trying to be as, as transparent as we can along the process. And then the other the other uh, major uh, a negative point that, that was brought up was there was a concern early on that we were taking money away from conservation. But a lot of the elephant nonprofits and charities that we work with, because we're also working on solving elephant conservation issues, not just the de-extinction of the mammoth, that you know we're donating to them, we're giving, we're supporting them with science and new tools and technologies around conservation. But one of the big things that they've said to me is that they've actually gotten more attention and more funding coming in than they had in, in the last you know several years because of the attention that we brought to uh, certain issues around elephant conservation, uh, like EEHD, which kills 25% of Asian elephants at the time of weaning that people don't even know about. And so I think that, that some of the, the lift that other uh, elephant conservation animal groups have gotten from us has been very, very positive. And I think that's kind of helped people realize that not we didn't take money away from conservation. We actually took money away from software. We were a technology company. So we took money away from another software company probably didn't get funded because we raised money from that, not uh, not taking away from conservation. But, but you know, one of the biggest things is just continuing to be really transparent and when they have these questions to make sure that we address them. Um, but some of it could also affect how we want to build the company because, you know, I don't think we're going to have all the right answers. And I think that's something that's really, really important in building a business is listening uh, to the to the community, whether that's your internal employees, your board, investors, but also the public at large. And, and, and you should take that feedback because there's there's really helpful, you know, jewels of information in there. So Ben, obviously a bigger conversation on de-extinction than we're going to talk about today. People can go to your website, Colossal Bioscience, learn more about it. Let's pivot for a moment and talk about a, a topic that you have expertise on that I'm interested and passionate about, and I'm sure most of our listeners are as well, and that is some of the, the, the a theme of your success as an entrepreneur has been that you have founded and, and grown and built and sold numerous companies, I'm guessing uh, positively, profitably. Uh, let me fire off a series of questions to you around for anybody who's in that entrepreneurial stage of their career, where they have a side hustle, they have a legitimate business that's growing, and they're thinking about a, an event, uh, you know, a, a transaction of some sort. Uh, answer some questions for me, starting with how does someone know when it's time for them to sell their company? I know it's not an easy question. It's situational based on age and yeah. you know, values and priorities, but are there some consistent metrics or insights or instincts even that you found to be true when you know you're kind of at that inflection point where perhaps a sale is the right thing to do? It's, it, it's a great question. And I've been really, really fortunate to work with incredible, you know, it's not just me, work with incredible co-founders and teams. I think sometimes people say like it's a company and people just kind of have like some weird view on what a company is, but it's really just a bunch of humans, you know, rallied around one mission that they're trying to go achieve, right? And so it, it really does take an entire village to build something, scale something. And, and sometimes those people are different along the way and then eventually exit it. You know, I don't know if there's an exact right time when to exit a company. Um, you know, I've, for example, I've never taken a company public. 
many of my partners have along their their various journeys. Um, you know, what I have found though, if you build something of value, um, you know, uh, buyers will come. I've never been in a position where we've gone out and said, "Oh, we've built this thing; we should go um, sell it." Now, we I have worked with uh, great investment bankers uh, in, in the past, and part of that is when you start to build something, you really focus on building something of value. You'll attract not just investors, but potential strategic acquisition targets. And in all of my deals that, that I've been fortunate to be a part of from an exit perspective have been around strategic uh, uh, acquisition partners. So people that are, you know, that care about the finances of the business and care about it, but really care about the capabilities, the technologies and the teams. They value that almost as more, that that just as much or more than than you know the revenue or or, or client base of whatever you're you're offering. And so I've been very fortunate to attract strategic buyers, um, you know, in my in my journey. Um, and, and then you know sometimes when those people come to you, sometimes there isn't a, a right time to sell. Like I, I had a company, uh, for example, that um, I co-founded with um, one of my partners, uh, Andrew, it was around conversational intelligence, and we had numerous people interested in buying the company so i had an interest in you know taking it to market and, and getting doing a market check and getting market feedback on on it we were very very early in the company i would like still to this day though to andrew's credit we net we, like the, the market still has not there's not been another dominant player in the conversational intelligence business and we were so far ahead so it, it probably could have been a, a much bigger outcome if we continued to run it for you know, three or four more years, but we probably wouldn't have started Hypergiant and, and we, de and I would, I definitely wouldn't have started Colossal. And so, so I think there's always trade-offs along the journey. And so it's a very personal choice. And I don't think there's the right time because if you're doing well and attracting buyers, then the odds are you'll probably continue to do well. Um, and, and so I think it is a very, very personal choice that you have to think about just yourself, your partners, your investors and board and be a good steward of, the, of their money and their opportunities if, if you have investors and then also the, your employees it's really important because a lot of people and rely on you when you start a company not just the people in your office but their families their siblings are they taking care of a loved one um, those things are really really important hey ben to that point i often hear that acquiring companies are looking as much about the quality of the management team, the leadership team as they are, the actual product or revenue or profit, or in your case, like you said, customers. To the extent that's true, that the leadership team is a crucial focus of a private equity company or a strategic acquisition, what are some of the leadership competencies that a firm needs to have in place as they're thinking about an acquisition, being acquired? What do you, what, in your experience, how important has the management team been and what are the types of competencies that these acquiring companies are looking for in that executive leadership team? Well, I think people, at least when you're coming in, look for replaceability, right? Like they, they want to ensure that like the entire business doesn't rely on, you know, one person or two people, right? They, they want to, in my experience, at least, they want at least a, a uh, somewhat stacked leadership team that has uh, uh, the right division of labor across it. So like, so for example, Example, you know, at, at my companies, I typically will have, you know, a CFO, I'll have a COO that can run day-to-day -day operations, I'll have a chief legal officer, and then depending on, you know, what the technology is, maybe it's a CIO or CTO. So I think they really care about ensuring that you have a well-rounded manager team, that there's diversified risk from their perspective, because anytime that someone comes in and buys a company, they want to ensure that, you know, the management team's not going to leave. And so, um, you know, that, 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 that's critical. And so I think that ensuring that you have the right checks and balances 
in that senior suite, but then you have other incredible women and men below that senior suite that could always grow, that could always rise into those positions it is really, really critical. Cause I think that's something that, that if there's a, if you have a company where you have one or two rock stars and, and you know, that in the business is a hundred percent dependent on them, you know, that that's, that's a, a big risk uh, and red flag uh, for acquisitions, at least in, in what I've seen. And so I've always tried to, to be really thoughtful, not really, carving it from a um, acquisition perspective and not really positioning from an acquisition perspective but i've always really tried to have a leadership style of of bringing in the right management team ensuring that we have the right division of labor across it empowering them to run the business without you know me telling them every decision and overseeing every decision that they make there's something that's really really important is kind of not just to get that team in place but to empower them because when it, when acquisition comes in and diligence comes in, that's something that you can't fake, and, and you need to ensure that people, you know, have great responsibility uh, in their in their domain, but they also work across a cross functional leadership team that's that's highly functional. So I think you've got to give that level of autonomy to that team. Um, and then one of the things that I really look for in in it is is I look the the, the checks and balances when I hire some uh, the leadership thing is is great, right? Their history is great. What their domain expertise for their tasks is going to be great, but but passion to me is like the the number one thing because you can find a million CFOs that are incredibly talented, but you want to find the CFO that is insanely passionate about what you are doing at that company. So for me, passion is one of the biggest uh, uh, factors for when I hire a C-suite exec. Well said, Ben. Uh, draw back upon your entrepreneurial experience. Have there been any themes? that you've seen perhaps in yourself or in others that uh, owners get in, get, get, get in trouble during the process of a sale? Is there, are there any consistent examples of when a sale has fell apart or you've watched a, a deal not come together and the owner, the seller, the founder perhaps, if you will, the CEO, whatever, mm -hmm. could have done some things differently or they did some things wrong that related to the um, deal breaking apart? Yep, it's a great question. Um, kind of answer it in two stories. I, one was a, a deal that didn't fall apart, that went through. I think that if you make the decision to sell, and I got this advice early on and I didn't heed it as well as I probably should have, but um, if you make the decision to sell and you're going down that path, you need to commit to that path, right? You shouldn't be wishy-washy. You should, if you're going to commit to selling it, then you need to commit to it, not just with resources and time, you need to make sure that your leadership's on board, your board's on board, your, your investors are on board, and whatever layer of management that, that needs to, to be involved in that process should, uh, should, should be fully on board. But, you know, like, but, but with me, and one of the experiences that, that uh, I had is, you also have to uh, make it unemotional, right? So this is easier, uh, it's much easier to say this than to actually do it in practice. Uh, because a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, put their blood, sweat, and tears, their money, their savings, everything. They leave, you know, they, they sacrifice their health, they sacrifice relationships. They put so much into into building, you know, this this thing where it almost becomes, you know, a living life force for them, right? And so, so giving that up sometimes hard. And so, I have found later in my career that you know, it's it's it isn't as emotional, right? As long as that the the stewardship is is there for whoever's taking it over. I'm less concerned about that. In the earlier days, it was very, very emotional, right? And so you, if you're going to go down this process, you have to commit to it and you have to do your best to remove that emotion side because at the end of the day, you know, that can screw up a deal if you're too emotionally charged on it. I was fortunate enough not to have 
made that mistake. But you know, I um, I also plan to stay on a little bit longer with one of my acquisition partners, and I just it was too it was too much too emotional for me, so I just, I just couldn't do it. And, and I think that that knowing yourself in 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 those traits and then figuring out how you can uh, build around those traits is, is really important. And so, you know, uh, for example, I've never gone with another company that I've sold, and and I never will. Um, I don't intend to sell Hypergiant or Colossal, so it's a little bit different now. But um, but but I still don't, uh, I, I would never go through that process and, and stay with the company after an exit, just because I know it's something that I don't think that I would be successful about. So I also really know myself you know, in, the, in that process. And then the second uh, a situation in terms of like how a, a deal falls apart, one of my um, one of my mentors, John McKinley, who's incredible, and uh, he, he took me the, this advice that I also didn't listen to on one of my deals, uh, where he's like, no, a, "You should give a deal zero percent chance until the money's in the bank, and then and then it goes you know from zero to a hundred, or it could be twenty percent to to a hundred percent. But it, it, until the deal is a hundred percent done, I, I had a, a deal for one of my companies um, uh, that uh, ended up the deal ended up falling apart. Um, and when the deal fell apart, um, you know, it was three days from signing the definitives. Um, so it's pretty clear. I mean, that's not like, oh, we're talking or a term sheet. That's, that's the definitives are done. Right. Uh, right. We just couldn't, we just, we couldn't get there. And, um, and, and so, so no deal is done until it's absolutely done. Take the flip side of that conversation on the more positive side. When you see deals, whether you're, they were your own or other deals that get done, they get funded the acquisition mm -hmm. happens, whether the leadership team stays in transition or not. What are some practical leadership deal closing tips you would give to people to say, you know, if you do these five things really well, your likelihood of closing the deal is exponential. Recognizing you can't control external factors, you can't control pandemics and you know, loans not coming through yeah. and financing. Are there some consistent things to say, this will up your chance of closing your deal so, so if you do these? I would, I would first, the first thing I would do is I'd be very clear about the things that you absolutely care about. You know, a lot of uh, lawyers and whatnot will always like to talk about ballots and all these other things, and they'll, they'll throw different, different things in from a negotiation perspective. That's just not my style. And so it's, it's very clear that in an, in an acquisition, it's like, here's the things that I care about and that the leadership cares about, whether that's financial, whether that's transition, whether that's uh, upside, whether that's for the employees, whatever that that list is, you should come to that list, and that should be like your ten commandments. And you should you should be very transparent from day one that that if there's a deal here, these are the things that I care about, right? And and that's very very important. A lot of people will hold back things or negotiate along the way. Um, I would rather know if we're aligned on the major careabouts for the team and for the management team and our investors um, and, and, and myself in some cases, then um, I'd, I'd rather know that on, you know, day one of the deal, not, you know, day 90 of the deal, right? Because you've incurred costs. And, and, and I think those are the recipes for, for disaster. If you don't, if you're not transparent about those things on day one and make it very, very clear what the deal breakers are. And I, and I see it time and time again, there's, I invest in a lot of companies um, and, 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 and I've got like 75, 80 uh, direct investments in technology startups. And, um, and I've seen this through some of the companies where you know some of the things that were really, really important to them, they just didn't surface that <laughs> upfront fast enough and they ended up being deal breakers for the other side. So, so I think that transparency is 
really, really key and should be throughout the entire process. But the major thing should be brought up early and because then you'll know very quickly if, if you have a fit. And, and, and I think that's kind of the biggest thing that is important. It's just getting to transparency and then getting it on paper. You don't have to get it in full definitive docs, but ensure that the upfront term sheet has the major terms that you care about. Don't kick things just to, to, to in my experience, I, I would not kick things to the definitive docs um, that are major, major deal points. You should, be, you should be writing a book. When does your book come out? I did write a book. Um, I didn't sell it. I only gave it away. Uh, I did write a book on, um, on the elements of civilization and oh, the intersection of critical infrastructure and space and defense. It's, it's a strange book. It, it got mixed reviews. Yeah, I did I not it. read that but, book. I, I, don't, I don't remember that book on my shopping cart. Well, so, so, so my last company, Hypergiant, was focused on the intersection of, of critical infrastructure, space and defense. And, and some people didn't understand how correlated those industries are and how important they are and how AI is transforming them. You know, we do a lot, my, my uh, Hypergiant does a lot of work in space and defense and uh, a lot of work with the, the U.S. Uh, with the Department of Defense and others. And and instead of like, like some people didn't get that. So instead of making the graphic better, I, I wrote a book about it um, in my perspective on why these are the, you know, pillars of society and the elements of, of civilization. And so, yeah, I'll send you a copy. It, it's definitely something I, I don't know if I'd it's not something that's ever going to go on a on a for sale situation, but um, but I, I I'm not I'm not really a, a book writing guy. I wrote it because I felt the need to explain my opinions on those intersections. Yeah, uh, and then I turned it into a book. Yeah, makes makes sense. Hey, a hey, last question um, for entrepreneurs or for that matter leaders that have a broad range of interests, like yourself, very much. Have you found any tips or? ideas on how to stay focused? Is that important to stay focused? Should you continue to be a, uh, spread your interest and energy and intellect across broad things to kind of hedge your bets? What have you found in your own life as someone who has obviously very disparate, maybe complementary, but different interest? How has that served you well or perhaps been um, a challenge for you? So I, I can't work on anything that I'm not passionate about. Um, I know it sounds super cliche, but I'm, but I'm also very, very curious, right? So my passions change. Um, and so before founding Hypergiant, I was past, I was very passionate about space, very passionate about defense, but didn't, um, you know, didn't know anything about that sector. And I just, I wanted to learn it. And sometimes the best way to learn something is just to dive in. Now, my biggest interest is, I'm so passionate about those things, but my biggest interest is synthetic biology. So how, you know, I, how can I build a series of synthetic biology companies over the next 10, 20 years? that can be massively helpful for humanity as well as, as society. And, and then for me, I think all of this evolves, right? Like early on in my career, I cared a lot about value creation. And then I started to care about value creation plus impact. And, and, and now kind of the, the Venn diagram that's really kind of like driving my decision tree of, uh, of what I focus on is really um, uh, value creation, impact, uh, value creation because I have investors, impact because we want to make a, uh, an impact on, on what we're doing uh, with, with the company. It's got to have a purpose. And then also uh, inspiration. C can we do stuff that's that's inspiring to other people to create a bigger ecosystem in an, an important category like synthetic biology? A lot of synthetic biology companies are not working on the deep extinction of mammoth other species. They're working on yeast or single cell organisms. And they're really awesome, right? But I think that the more successful that we can be in synthetic biology with, with Colossal, I think that has a halo effect for the broader synthetic biology industry as a whole, right? And the same thing that like, you know, Blue Origin and SpaceX have done such an incredible job of. There's been so many rocket launches 
for years that no one cared about. And like my grandmother now knows when SpaceX is doing something because they've done such a good job of inspiring and bringing the public in. And, and we hope to do that obviously within the synthetic biology and, and broader biology sector. So, so those are the things that, that are driving me now. And then I think that when you make a decision to go all in, with this case with synthetic biology, you know, it shouldn't just be a interest. You really need to do it. So like, I, and really learn it. So I spend a lot of time actually studying and learning about biology so that um, I can be dangerous enough to, to, to know what our scientists are talking about. I'm going to guess your childhood uh, hero of fiction was Johnny Appleseed. Am I right? Kind of always just leading <laughs> out and trying new things. <laughs> I just like, yeah, I just like to, I, I'm more of a sci-fi, I think I was more of a sci-fi kid, so I think I was more um, uh, pushed by various, you know, sci-fi movies and books. So not Johnny but, Appleseed. But, oh, so not Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> so not exactly on, on brand for me, but um, but yeah, I, I just feel like we have incredible women and men that are building incredible companies that can make an incredible impact, and we should just really dive deeper into, in, into science, because a lot of the stuff we've seen in science fiction, you know, for decades, or read about for, you know, 50 years, we have the capacity to do it. We just need to have people to go focus on it. And, and that's really exciting for me. And I think it's an incredible time to be an entrepreneur. Ben, for our viewers and listeners that want to learn more about bringing back the woolly mammoth, the concept of uh, de-extinction, or for that matter, even colossal bioscience, where would you direct them? Just go to colossal.com. We try to continually update the site. It's got all our social handles on there, but it's just colossal.com. Ben Lamb, great success to you and your investors. Great discussion, mini masterclass today on how to create value, how to be uh, fiercely focused on what are your kind of your 10 commandments, you said, so to speak, to make sure that they're transparent and clear up front. I appreciate you investing in our listeners today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, I, I obviously love entrepreneurship, so anything I can do to help the community. Your passion is contagious. Great success to you and the Colossal family. And to those of you who are watching and listening, we'll see you back here next week for a new discussion on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. <music>